Hey everyone, it's your friend Mike. This is a reminder that we're doing a live panel at GeeklyCon 2017 in St. Louis, Missouri on July 21st at 11am. If you want to see us live, this is your chance. The topic is bad movies that we love and why we think that's okay. Not only will it be Pete and I, disembodied voice guy, and a guest appearance by our main segment editor Eli, but it will also feature the following Sacred Cows players. Matthew Morris, M. Hiroshi Sutherland, Nika Howard, Veronica Brady, and Sam Brady. On top of that, we'd like to announce that we're still looking for sketch writers. So if you have an idea for the show or want to write something for our non-live show episode, give us a tweet at Sacred Cows Pod or send us an email at sacredcows at heroeoftheweb.com. So what are the next few episodes? Glad you asked. In July, the live show that we just talked about from GeeklyCon 2017 will be the episode. In August, we'll do Arrested Development featuring Sacred Cows player Nika Howard. And now, on to this month's episode. As a host of this podcast when I was 25... Hard to believe. Grandfather was a podcaster, father too. Me and him was a show host at the same time. Him at Maximum Fun and me here. I think he's pretty proud of that. I know I was. Some of the old-time podcasters never used a Yeti. A lot of folks find that hard to believe. Scott Ackerman never carried one. That, the younger Scott. Paul F. Tompkins, he, w- he wouldn't wear one up in Earwolf country. I always like to hear about the old-timers. Never missed a chance to do so. Steve, over at Faro Audio, knew everyone's RSS feed by heart. Can't help but compare yourself against the old-timers. Can't help but wonder how they would have operated these goofs. There's this iTunes reviewer I sent to the electric chair a while back. My arrest, my testimony. He gave us one star. Paper said it was a crime of passion, but he told me there wasn't any passion to it. Told me he'd been planning to kill some podcast for as long as he could remember. Told me if they turned him out, he'd do it again. Said he was going to hell. Be there in about 15 minutes. I don't know what to make of that. I I sure do don't. The podcast you see now, it's hard to take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to make strange goofs to even do this job. But I don't want to put my chips forward facing something I don't understand. Man would have to put his soul into hazard. I'll have to say... Okay, I'll be part of this podcast. It's Sacred Cows Tonight! With your hosts, Mike and Pete. Featuring disembodied voice guy. With special guest Patrick Rankin. And Sacred Cows players Sam Brady and Veronica Brady. Featuring the Sacred Cows Tonight band. And now welcome your hosts... Mike and Pete. Thanks, disembodied voice guy. Say, disembodied voice guy. Huh. I don't know if he's here. Veronica must have scared him away or something. I didn't do that this time. I was on my best behavior. Maybe he's already on his way to GeeklyCon. Typical Veronica scaring away the voice. We'll We'll figure it out. Welcome to the Sacred Cows Podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Pete. And we're here with our special guests uh, talking about No Country for Old Men. We've got Patrick Rankin. Hi, y'all. Pleasure to be here. And we've got two of our Sacred Cows players, Sam Brady. Woo! 
It's such a thrill to be here, guys. Sam Strong. <laughs> and Veronica Brady. Yay! <laughs> it's me. All right, lots of enthusiasm. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so welcome to the show, everybody. How are you doing? Good. I have to admit, I just watched the movie that we're about to review, and I am like a stress ball you, you because of it. Very stressed because of this movie. <sighs> you, you can't be in the same room as this movie for a I couple can't. scenes. I just have to walk away. It has a lot of tension. It is tense. Okay. So to answer your question, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> She's tense. A little tense. Pay for your whole seat. I at- only need the edge. <laughs> so uh, this is Patrick's first time on the Sacred Cows Tonight show. Uh, so Patrick, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, something you'd like to promote. Oh, uh, Pat Rankin, 6'5", white, world is my oyster because of both of those things. So, you know, I can't really complain. (laughs) I've had a touch of cancer, but all things considered, still white in America. So, um, to promote, uh, (laughs) I'm on a podcast on Geekly Inc. called Brute Force. It's a real play podcast with uh, the Adam Bash from Sayer. Um, You know, he's the storyteller. It's pretty great. Vijaya Shrestha, you might know from your Wizard Harry, Monster Hearts, also probably Brute Force. Carly Shields and uh, my man John, a.k.a. Nudzer. So we have a pretty fun time, bi-weekly releases. Uh, that's where you might know me from. And I tweet about coffee a lot. So Right on. Cool. That's pretty much it. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be here. Um, love movies, love Cormac McCarthy, and love the Coen brothers. So... Episode was made for me. Good night for you. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So let's catch up with uh, with Veronica and Sam. What else? Uh, what have you got new? What's going on? What's fresh? First of all, Patrick, I love how you just threw out there. You had a touch of cancer. It really fit into this movie. We were like, I got the cancer. Yeah. <laughs> Guess how many people I know on Sacred Cows? This many. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. What's new with us? Uh, we went on a big poker walk today. We've been poker walking a lot. We like to hit trends once uh, we get really enthusiastic about them once everyone else has died down. And that's not on purpose. We're just slow and not hip. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we've been following all the trends that people are done with, including Pokemon Go, where we took two gyms and just painted the town red for also, today. we've taken up whiskey and Coke. Fantastic. Coca-Cola. 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 Oh, oh yeah. Not, like... not cocaine. Yeah, because whiskey is definitely over, guys. It's We've over. taken up lots of drugs. So, Perfect again, for our hip show. And cool. Hip and cool. We're, we feel like cocaine is still too mainstream. That's right. Once it goes off the radar, we'll be picking that up. Look out for us in the 2040s. We're going to that up. We're going to get so skinny. <laughs> Well, the, to be fair, the 80s have come sort of back in vogue in all the worst kind of ways. So, um, <laughs> I am buying several long uh, well, jeans. <laughs> I was offered cocaine at a wedding in Macon, Georgia, by some fancy man who walked up to me, tapped his nose and said, Hey, man, you like to party? And I said, <laughs> Nope. <laughs> No, and then I went no. to my wife and I said, I hate that party. man just offered me cocaine. And she said, yeah, this is a real weird wedding. <laughs> I have never been to a wedding where it's snowing in the bathroom. No, man, that's it was really weird. Close. No, that's crazy. All right. 
Well, oh, so that's what okay. you get for asking yep. us. <laughs> yeah, that's new. <laughs> you get once. points for originality. Never disappointing. On those answers, so it's all good. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. We can start collecting points. I hear that's out of stock. It is from me. <laughs> yeah, he's not even on the Twitter. Oh, I'm not. Yeah, whatever so, that might be. Your life is better for it. <laughs> all right, so <laughs> we are ostensibly here to talk about the Coen Brothers directed movie. No Country for Old Men. So in order to do this, we typically have somebody do a 10,000-foot summary of the movie, start to finish, of what happened. So uh, normally our new guest gets Impossible. First... <laughs> we'll see. Our, first, our new guest gets first opportunity. So, Pat, do you want to do a quick 10,000-foot view of what happened in this movie? Get that over. The with. only suitable answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Okay, so Tommy Lee Jones is at peak Tommy Lee Jones. He's the most Tommy Lee Jones he's ever been in this movie. And he's a sheriff, and he's married to a sassy woman who loans him his horse. But before that happens, there's a man with a weird haircut who chokes someone out with his handcuffs, and it's super, super cool. Then at the same time, you see the mean older brother from the Goonies. He's out shooting pronghorns in Texas. But then he stumbles upon a drug deal gone bad. Oh, no. But he goes to investigate. And what he finds is a dying man in a truck who says, bring me some water. Please close the door. There's some wolves. And he says, aren't any wolves. And then he goes off, finds a satchel full of money. That'll come into play later. At night, he goes back to his house. The ghost from Harry Potter, the Ravenclaw ghost, that's his wife. Only this time, she's got a southern accent. And she says, what's in the satchel? He tells her it's full of money. She doesn't believe him. He wakes up, goes to take water back. Because even though he's the mean big brother from the Goonies, he's got a good heart. But oh no, shouldn't have done that. Now the bad drug dealers are on to him. They chase him, they sick some dogs into him, swims on the river. Baby black. Oh no, bad haircut man's back. He's after the money. He comes after the mean older brother from the Goonies looking for the money. Tommy Lee Jones is doing Tommy Lee Jones stuff. Surprise, Woody Harrelson. Only it's not white man can't jump. He's wearing a cowboy hat. They go on, they meet the guy from Office Space who has a stapler. Only now he's a big time drug guy. There's an accountant that works with them. Who knows? Uh, there's a cool shotgun with a silencer that blows people's arms off. That's awesome. Again, that's the guy with the weird haircut. Things happen. There's some milk that people drink. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones is like, I'm getting too old for this. Uh, the guy with the weird haircut flips some coins and says some real weird stuff. And then at the end, uh, pretty much everyone dies and everyone's sad. That's more or less it. That was like an awesome synopsis of the first 20 minutes of the movie and then <laughs> followed by, and then everybody dies and it's over. Well, I had a lot of wine. So <laughs> <laughs> What the uh, listeners don't know is that took 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was that was about where I would have given up on the play-by-play. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the movie kind of gives up on the one beat happening to the other beat. Everyone has a plan and the the plan doesn't keep going. It's very Conan Brothers. It's very mm-hmm. um there's this randomness, there's this viciousness, there's this Uh, the dice yeah i think that you're setting it up you believe that you are set into a movie where everyone is setting up um like one of those cool dominoes things where one domino is going to fall and everything is going to happen you know it's perfect order basically yeah except you realize this is not dominoes this is like pinball completely Hmm. different concept and you find out way too late because you're already emotionally um, attached to the idea that it's dominoes. And the framing kind of 
you know, westerns are the, one of the oldest genres. I mean, people have been watching westerns forever, and they mm-hmm. frame it like a traditional western. I mean, even that opening shot, and all the vistas, story. and the really wide shots of nature where not much is happening. Um, the viewer kind of goes in and goes, oh, I know what's going to happen here. I know exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be a good guy. There's going to be a bad guy. And these are, you know, so I think that plays into that. It starts with a very light colored uh, desolation and moves to uh, like uh, kind of like a like a a thriller, a crime thriller type of a movie. Mm -hmm. That's basically just a bunch of dark still shots. Maybe nothing's really happening in them except for in this tiny little place where your eye is suddenly drawn and then gunshot and then, you know, no incidental music throughout the entire thing. You know, yeah. Interesting cinematography. It, it's very, it's very much, um, lots of tension and, and very little, uh, like very little release, I guess. And not, not in the way you expect it to release anyway. Um, I mean, Javier Bardem, uh, Anton Chigurh is just kind of going around and he's a, you know, malevolent force of destruction, basically. There's a quote from the movie that kind of speaks to how there's, there's no winning or there's no understanding it. And it's one of my favorite quotes from it. It's from um, Ellis is the gentleman of all the cats. And uh, just, just read a little bit there. Ed Tom Bell goes, that man you shot died in prison. He goes, yeah. Uh, Anglo, yeah. What'd you done had he been released? Oh, I don't know. Nothing. Wouldn't be no point in it. So I'm kindly surprised for you to say that. Well, all the time you spend trying to get back what's been took from you, more is going out the door. After a while, you just have to get uh, a tourniquet on it. And then he goes in and talks more about why he's not being a cop anymore. But that felt to me like such a quote of the movie. Uh, I've been really obsessed with Noah Hawley recently. He's someone who uh, filmmakes very similar to the Coen brothers, uh, partly because he does Fargo for television, and that is made to be like a Coen brothers show. And I just read his most recent novel, um, before the fall, there's a strong, strong, strong theme in that novel of like the only way to win is to not play kind of a thing. There are a lot of abusive relationships depicted in it that are, that are really well done and, and very heartbreaking. And the only piece of them, the only way that it ever gets better is to completely be done with the game. So the, this quote for it where you're just, the more time you're trying to get back what's been taken from you, the more stuff is going out the door felt so perfect for this movie. I always think about Batman when I hear about revenge stories and that kind of thing or or that kind of, you know, sort of thing. It's just like, you know, it eats away at you instead of, you know, healing or anything like that. I don't know. It's kind of like that. Yes, you continue to lose, you know, more and more as you attempt to regain what you once had type of a thing. Oh, agree to disagree. Nope. Let's hear your take. No, I just been on life. Oh, you like revenge. Gotcha. Feel free to shout me down for this, but uh, Javier Bardem's Anton Chigurh is in the pantheon of top three all-time on-screen villains to me. I mean, he's up there with Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs and Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. Um, I mean, he's not on screen a ton, but he command. I mean, he he has a commanding. It's it's one of the finest performances I've seen, and that Oscar was well deserved. And I was reminded yeah. of it watching the movie. I mean, I couldn't believe he's just—he does give a so incredible, a so so incredible. It, it's so interesting that you brought up um, Heath Ledger's The Joker because I didn't—I didn't really realize it until you just said it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally the same kind of character, just a force for chaos. They—they um, they mm-hmm. have their own purpose, and you don't always know what it is, and that's kind of the thing with uh, Anton Chigurh. 
I would definitely wouldn't call wouldn't call sugar sugar. A uh, force of chaos, uh, a force of destructive order. I would say he's he's very uh, methodical. He has a definite code that he follows, a code of destruction, um, and only on certain occasions does he like let any sort of you know the variability of human nature come through, and that's in the the, the form of a coin flip. You know, I guess if he isn't exactly sure if he should lay waste to you. He's like, well, let's let the coin decide. It's the best I can do thing. for you. Yeah. yeah, best I can do for you is flip a coin to see if you live or die. I mean, it seems like he follows a very strict order. See, I think, yeah, I, I would say like the exact opposite, though. I don't think that he is human and cannot experience human nature at all. Uh, I think that the chaos is the only order that he actually sees because um, it's kind of like a child going after you know, a candy or a cake or something that they want. Like they're just very set on getting that. And that's, I think what the money is to him. He doesn't care about the money. It's just, Mm -hmm. that's what he's doing right now. And if something were to catch his attention, otherwise he would completely abandon that and go to the next thing. But would he, I mean, he, he's very singular in, in his mind. It seems, of course, I don't know him. I haven't met him. I'd be dead if I did. Um, I think that, yeah, uh, so you find that the money isn't important to him because in the end he doesn't have the money, but he's still after the cake and he is fulfilling the promises that he said he would Mm -hmm. in his quest to get the cake. But it isn't really about the cake anymore. It's just about like, okay, well, we're just going to keep on going on this trail until something else happens. So I, I think that he's the absolute definition of like in my world and the thing that I kind of uh, delve in a lot is being that Nyarlathotep and creeping chaos and that he's not from the world. Mm-hmm. I, I do think there's a thing that a couple of things that place him apart from the world The how they um, shot him and had him be was deliberately supposed to be from the world, the uh, from otherworldly. I'm sorry. I'm kind of being an articulate right now, but there's a scene where they first show him they mirror, let's see, uh, what is it? They mirror the man who fell for, to Earth from 1976. They kind of give the viewer who's familiar with that cinematography a sense that he's not from the world. His haircut is supposed to be kind of from the Crusades, so it's be unusual. When they approached Javier Bardem about playing it, he said, I don't try, I speak bad English, and I hate violence. And they said, that's why we called you. They wanted to have somebody who did apart from the world and they also uh the character is based off of a character uh, from a novel from the book too he has a signature gun in that book and that signature gun that he has i i wrote wrote down what that gun is but i don't have it here is a gun that isn't invented at the time place where that that thing um happens and that's strange because the author has a very good attention to detail but the gun that this killer has is a gun that couldn't exist on this earth um, for him to have it in that time period. They also show this gun in that movie. They, they do it when he comes around the, the car after he crashes the pickup truck. There's a gun there. And he picks it up. It's, it's that exact same gun from there. But yeah, there, I, I'm glad that you guys have said otherworldly. He is he is certainly portrayed as evil incarnate, kind of not of the world in a certain mm-hmm. way. That's why I'm glad we have Veronica mm-hmm. here to talk about it. You, you depict <laughs> such Lovecraftian themes when you talk about it, and so they have like a crawling chaos near a lethotep man in black type character. Yeah. It's really consistent with McCarthy, his whole canon. I mean, Outer Dark, like the second book he wrote, there's italicized chapters throughout where there's just, it just refers to this 
they, and it's three guys riding through the novel, and it's completely independent of what's happening, and they're just chaos coming for you. Mm-hmm. See it again in Blood Meridian when he writes about the judge. The judge has no eyebrows. He's bald. He's this hulking guy that just, and at the end of the novel, he's just dancing. They say he's going to dance forever. And he's kind of been this all-encompassing violence throughout. And then again, here in No Country for Old Men, you have Anton Chigurh, and it's McCarthy seems to be obsessed with religion and otherworldly kind of punishment. And you see it throughout his whole canon uh, culminating in the road when, you know, kind of the world itself is, is otherworldly. So it's, it's definitely consistent in his canon. And I think the Coen brothers did a really masterful job of kind of capturing that, especially, you know, what Sam said with the haircut and with the framing and and things of that nature. Well, that's very in depth. I took a course in 2007 on every Cormac McCarthy book, so just glasses. <laughs> nice. Oh, what a great choice for the show. That's awesome, Patrick. Yeah. That, well, that, that was a question we had while we were watching the movie. Uh, you know, it's it, at, at times dreary, dark, um, mm-hmm. stark, certainly. Um, uh, not a lot going on in, in a lot of the shots, either uh, audio or visual. Um and we were wondering what exactly the theme is. So if you've read the book, Patrick, um, how do you think it compares in general to to the movie as a whole? Oh, man. I mean, it's almost shot for shot. And I think it is because it is probably McCarthy's most accessible novel. Novel. I mean, All the Pretty Horses, a lot of people will like, but I was looking up his Rotten Tomatoes score is like 32. Uh, no Country for Old Men has like a 93. It's his most accessible. It's his most ready to film um, novel and it's almost I mean there's there's some spots where the Cohen shine through like at the end when Anton Sugar's arm is broken mm-hmm. and those kids are like Jesus you're bone yeah <laughs> that's a very Cohen mm-hmm. but the yeah. ending, sticking out man and uh, the reason a lot of people in the film because it works so spectacularly in the novel uh, Ed Tom's final little monologue and then cut to black it's exactly how the book ends um, which works wonderfully for the novel but can definitely be jarring for the movie but I mean they were so religious to the book that they even ended on a part where most filmmakers would have said you know we can't end the movie with this weird monologue cut yeah so i mean I it's, love it's, the ending. it's almost exact love the ending we should have them all dance around with sparklers at the end right <laughs> right i mean all of it. i mean in the book um what's his name uh god can llewellyn randomly dies i mean you don't the action doesn't happen in the book you flip through sure. a chapter and Llewellyn's dead and the police are pulling up. So, I mean, even that, when that could have been a great scene in the movie, they even, they're even religious to that, which is pretty neat. No, though, well, that's, that's surprising. Well, not surprising, but it's nice when that happens. I think the author has a definite vision. And the filmmaker respects that. I love that it was a Conan Brothers that, that did this just because um, when, when you're speech writing, there's, the, there's always this thing you want to keep in mind of earning credibility with your, your, your audience. So even before you say what you want to say, you want to say why it's important that you say it or it's meaningful that they hear it. You just want to build credibility. And the Coen brothers, they built they built credibility with violence and with tension mm-hmm. in a way that there's this sense of anything can happen and randomness in, in the world. Um, some people would call it George R. R. Martin-esque. I, I don't think it's the same. I think they're, they're different because they're, they exist in the real world. It's not like a gothic world. It's a real world where violence, guns, everything has this, this sort of chaotic nature to it it's a, it's a snake that can bite you just as easily can bite the next person and mm-hmm. you really feel that by the end of any coen's brother production so I, i'm so glad that it was a, a marrying of the, this novel that's got those sort of themes of the coen brothers who can earn that credibility to the the violence and the tension that kind of permeates the whole whole, whole thing 
where it doesn't feel like um, another Coen Brothers movie to me is there's almost zero humor to it. I mean, uh, even some of the things that uh, the characters find funny, like uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character, um, aren't particularly uh, funny to the audience, you know? They try to quip a little bit in the movie. I noticed that. It's, you know, I had trouble deciding if it was supposed to be funny or not. I think that, so I guess growing up in that area and with those people, um, for me, it just seemed like the only comedy that you had was in the deputy. So Tommy Lee Jones, um, deputy. And, you know, you really get that whenever they see the milk and the condensation is still on the milk. He's like, well, that's aggravating. And (laughs) then several beats later, the deputy comes, well, that is aggravating. He's like, yeah, I already beat you there. It was aggravating. Oh, Sheriff, we just missed him. Yes. (laughs) We've got to put out an APB. For what? Man who's recently drank milk? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It was really beautiful because the whole entire theme of this film leads you to believe that it is a Western. And that is almost the only time that you see like a genuine John Wayne moment where he's Mm -hmm. like, well, son, you know kind of here's here's the skinny on everything and i really loved that um i also think that the film really sets you up to i think the film sets you up to fail in such a beautiful way because as the viewer you feel like any one of those characters where the experience that you thought that you were having has been taken away from you and no one in the film escapes that everyone has that Mm. um even if you're looking at just sideline characters like the kids at the very end of the movie or the trailer park uh secretary all of their lives are absolutely different after this point you know Mm -hmm. and so no one no one leaves this movie unscathed including the viewer and i love that Mm. i thought it was so great i love how in the very beginning you're introduced to llewellyn as the hunter and you think he's the good guy and then at the very end you're like okay well I'm watching the hunter. He's being hunted, but actually he's hunting the the hunter. So it's going to all turn out. Okay. And it doesn't, doesn't at all turn out. Okay. For this. And you realize that you are not a participating member of this in the sense that you're watching the good guy versus the bad guy. You are just watching and feeling that watching the wake. Yeah, exactly. As, as far as good and bad characters go, um, I don't think any of the characters really fit that mold per se. Um, obviously, Sugar's a pretty bad guy, but um, I, I still have trouble thinking about chaos in the way that that uh, has been presented. It it just feels uh, more like it feels more like lawful evil, but he is absolutely a one hundred percent destructive force. That kind of thing. That being said, he of course you know. Uh, often will spare people it shows uh, moments of kindness or, or mercy or whatever uh, even if it may be at random uh Llewellyn you think he's the good guy again but um but you know he he seems just more of like a roguish uh, kind of a gray outside the law character and even Tommy Lee Jones's sheriff um you know he's not a 100% truthful individual he he seems apathetic at time i'm i'm actually not exactly sure what his character motivations were um, if he's you know just a guy who's close to retirement or a man an old man and in no country for him feeling outside his element or or what might be going on there but no i think it's i think he brings a good point and i'm glad veronica brought up the milk earlier because it jogged my memory um i think 
Well, one thing to note, Llewellyn, Anton, and Ed Tom are never on the screen at the same time throughout yeah. the entire movie, which I thought was interesting. Um, hmm. Anton's otherworldly, but he looks older than Llewellyn. He seems to be the younger uh, of the two by far. But in that scene in the trailer where they drink the milk, it cuts to the TV and you see Anton Chigurh's reflection. And it's like the alien from Signs, but it's a solid outline. It's, it's the whole black silhouette of Anton Chigurh. And then later, you see the sheriff's reflection. They sit in the same spot. Anton drinks straight from the bottle. The sheriff pours himself a glass. But you, when you see the sheriff, it's, his reflection isn't a solid outline. It's kind of refracted, and you see the sheriff in three shades. You see the dark the gray and then the light and it's almost like the sheriff doesn't know what his place is anymore which is why you know the apathy may may come in and i thought that was really telling that scene where it reflects them both they sit in the same spot anton chigurh knows exactly who he is and what his purpose is oh wow um, that's really great i never even considered that i remember how striking that shot was but i didn't think about that particular thing that's, that's awesome patrick i want to ask you something since you're an expert on the book well <laughs> i haven't read it in a decade but <laughs> <laughs> I notice every relationship in this film seems to be framed in sort of um, closely mirrored someone else. So very still, or excuse me, I'm not reading my notes, I'm saying what the notes say. Very, very early on, we have Sugar say, hold still, and then we immediately have our main character, Llewellyn, say, hold still. We're, we're being presented them both as hunters. I made that exact fast. note, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's there's pairs, they're, they're in tandem, and then same with the, the sheriff and the deputy. Uh, you get the thesis statement of there's this old thing and we're trying to live up to it and the new thing is something different. Mm -hmm. And then that thesis statement gets enforced again and again and again. It's sort of an essay of the new versus the old order with the sheriff and the deputy where he's he's new and he's old. Um, and every single interaction they have kind of underscores how they're, they're different. What, what, one's from an older perspective, one's from a much newer perspective. Sometimes the deputy is just sort of... Um, not as good at things, but he is really great at figuring out some of the violence when they come to the circle. Like his, right. his stuff, how he has that, he's just got a different skill set, a different perspective. Uh, do, do you see the relationships in this as being like two pairs where we're meant to see each other in contrast? I think so. And I think what's interesting, what McCarthy does in the book is he sets the sheriff off specifically. All the sheriff's chapters, they're numbered differently and they're all, they're like two or three pages and all the prints italicized. And it's almost like that opening shot. It's kind of like the sheriff musing on what's happening. Interesting. And then you'll have scenes with him and the, and the deputy. Like, they'll have some conversations. But the scenes from the sheriff's point of view are all italicized, where everything else happens in normal print with different chapter numbers. So I think absolutely. Um, I think they're all elements of, of each other. And, I, and I'm glad Pete brought up the, the chaotic evil. And, or, and I think it's right. I think you have the sheriff is is lawful good, but he's starting to move toward that neutral good because he just doesn't, he can't keep up the fight anymore. And um, Llewellyn's about as neutral as you can get. Like he, he's advantageous. He sees the money, he takes it, but then he feels bad and goes back with that jug of water. And then you have Anton Chigurh who, who has a code. We don't know what that code is, but he's a strict adherent to it. Um, and so I think those relationships are that way. I would be really interested to understand the title of the movie a lot better. I think that each of us are way too young to understand what it means to be an older individual that is um, in their element and yet so far removed because time has passed on. Mm. And I would be really interested. I, I'm interested to know what that feels like at the same time. I never want that feeling to come. 
But um, I think that that's one of the things that the movie conveys so well in in that you could want to do the right thing, but what if you don't know what the right thing is? And, you know, social mores change and society changes in general. And where is the older individual and where is their place in that? So I, I think that we're all honestly just very, very, very much too young to understand what that feeling is. But um, I want to go back and read this when, or uh, read it and watch this movie after I've retired so I can understand what that feels like mm. and if they got it right. Well, if, if it's this universe, it seems like uh, they, you know, set it up as, well, nothing ever changes. It, it kind of feels like, um, I don't know, I'd, I might have fallen flat on some of the symbolism, but that final dream that he recounts before the moon, the movie's over about carrying the fire up to the mountain and he was sure he'd follow him. I don't exactly know what in the world that was supposed to mean, but it kind of felt like a nothing ever changes. You know, uh, the speech at the beginning, granddaddy was a lawman, daddy was a lawman, I'm a lawman. It's like, well, you know, you know, time is just this constant thing and every man, woman and child will eventually experience exactly what you're talking about, Veronica. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ellis has a great speech to, uh, to the sheriff where he kind of says it's not new what you're going through. He even says it's, it's, it's vanity to think that it's new what you're going through. What you think this evil is coming for you or anything like that. He, he, he talks about other people have been shell-shocked or been, been out of PTSD from that. So I, I think you're right that there's a sort of timelessness to the world. Well, um, and I think that you really get, and, and I think that really just further imprints, at least on me and my perspective of the movie, that Anton is the man in black, is the creeping chaos, yeah, because we feel that sense of caw that you get such a great sense of in when when you read the Dark Tower series and cause a wheel. You can chase the man in black across the desert, but at the end, you're just going to start over again no matter who you are. And so you can chase your demons as far as you can, but in the end, time will just flip on you again and you'll just be chasing them for another lifetime. So. And I think the Coen brothers were really cognizant of that. I mean, they have this habit of having commentary of their past movie in their current film. Like everyone in the cult thing is, you know, they made Fargo and Steve Buscemi wouldn't be quiet. So in Big Lebowski, they told him to shut up the whole time. Um, <laughs> they followed No Country for Old Men with, with Burn After Reading. And at the very end of Burn After Reading, uh, J.K. Simmons, uh, one of the main characters, is meeting with another FBI guy. And he goes, what did we learn here? He goes, I don't, I don't know, sir. He goes, I don't know either. I guess we learned not to do it again. And that's like <laughs> seemed like a right. with the Coen brothers framing in mind. I watched Burn After Reading recently again. And, and huh. that just really seemed like a, a meta commentary on No Country for Own. What did we learn? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> learned not to do it again. <laughs> you know? But how could you? That's yeah. all you can do is do it yeah. again, you know? Exactly, exactly. Can I say that just from a cinematography point of view, and I know that we keep on like switching gears like mad crazy in this uh, particular episode, but one of the things that I fucking love, freaking loved about mm -hmm. this show or this movie was that you have so many shots of like boots first, mm -hmm. and you really got to see who was in that frame by where they had walked and why they were walking. And I thought that was so important and you don't really realize it until you are reflecting on that movie, but it's so good because every single person 
you can see who and why they are with their footwear. I loved it. Mm. I hadn't noticed that's a really focus on the footwear. They they yeah. take boots. Yeah. Or, um, sugar. Uh, I feel like I feel like this movie has a lot of influence in in many uh, movies, other pop culture that came after it. Specifically, um, uh, with like Breaking Bad, there's a lot of um, you know the, the way that this was shot and things like that that are kind of uh, you know taken into consideration for like Breaking Bad, and of course um, the way that some of the characters are uh, is sort of like nods to this movie, especially considering Breaking Bad is also ultimately a Western, uh, just over 60 hours instead of two and a half. So <laughs> <laughs> no, like Gus and Anton Chigurh, I can definitely see shades of that's a great point. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's where I was kind of going is like, um, when something happens to Gus in Breaking Bad, um, he doesn't necessarily react out of feeling very much. Um, uh, not in the same way that uh, you know other characters react. You know, with uh, it's very methodical. And the same thing, like when uh, Anton gets shot, you know, he's not like just overly angry or whatever. He's very methodical with with how he handles the situation, um, and just kind of does what he has to do to get back to being that unstoppable force of chaos. You know that he is. Plus, he doesn't have health insurance, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I wrote a note that that's what um, it's going to come to to get antibiotics with Trump care is we're going to have to start <laughs> Molotov cocktails to walk into pharmacies to get medicine. <laughs> I laugh to keep from crying. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. So true. So other themes in this movie, uh, besides we've got, you know, the the forces of good, evil, different characters, uh, age, um what about just innocence getting caught in in the crossfire? You mean life? Yeah, I suppose. Well, characters are sobered, sometimes sobered to death, but there's there's a sunny outlook that gets darkened in this movie. I think through almost every character, every story, every character arc. We we don't know of a lot of these uh, innocents survive or not, especially like the the old guy at the uh, at the gas station. I think he's good. You think he won the coin toss? I think he makes it. The old guy at the gas station? Yeah, I think he I think he got a lucky coin. The only one I'm I'm foggy on is the accountant. He mm. kills the when accountant. Like, because look at this, him. look at this. He said, You see me, so you're dead, basically. When he yeah. sees the kids at the end of the movie, he's like, Here's a hundred dollars, you didn't see me. So I don't he have to kill you. Me. And he walks away. Right. So you know how I talked about um uh footwear earlier. One of the things that I noticed about Anton is that he is that am I saying that right, Anton? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. sorry. Um, so, anyways, what I saw of him is that he does not mind bleeding into his own boots, but at no time will he allow someone else's blood to get on his own shoes. Oh yeah, that's and true. so when he walks out of um, Llewellyn's wife's or the mother-in-law's house, right? You'll notice that just for a second, he looks on the bottom of his shoes for blood mm-hmm. and then he walks away. And the Clear first time that I had that seen her. it, yeah, the first time I had seen it, I didn't pick it up. I was like, oh man, did she or didn't she die? And the second time I'm like, oh shit, she did. <laughs> That's <laughs> too bad. Wipe <laughs> yourself off, man. You did. Interesting. <laughs> Chris Tucker. Yeah. And then he, he wore, he took off his shoes when he went to kill Llewellyn the first time and uh, ultimately mm-hmm. killed those other three guys. In the hotel room. 
with that dope shotgun. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's also interesting, speaking about Innocence Lost, how thinking you're doing the right thing in this movie, with the exception of Ed Tom, ultimately leads to your disaster. Like if Llewellyn hadn't gone back with that water, mm-hmm. he might have made it. Yeah. If his no sassy mother-in-law hadn't been friendly, because I would imagine in the 80s, in a border town, it would be really easy to be a little racist toward Hispanics or immigrants. And she was. Probably. Yeah. Um, and she's like really polite to that Hispanic man that helps her with her luggage and tells them where they're going, which is what leads to Llewellyn's death. Right. So it's almost like no good deed. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows what's going to happen to those kids. Isn't that a... That they gave that money. Isn't that sort of a theme of the Coen Brothers movies in general? That's one of the things they've always had is like yeah. no good deed goes unpunished. Right. Right, right. Right. I wonder I'm wondering now too if they were attracted to this because Anton Chigurh's singular focus on this one thing. Like in mm-hmm. all their movies they have one character like um I can't remember her name but she's the gal the main character in Burn After Reading. She wants money for her liposuction. And right. Big Lebowski, they have a guy obsessed with his rug. They always have one person in their film that's obsessed with something. Um, I'm wondering if that's what drew them to this project, that they had this character with a singular focus. That's a great point. It's very like the dollop. You know, I don't know if you know the dollop podcast. Uh, they talk about a lot of weird, quirky things in history. My favorite dollops is when there's someone just inexplicably obsessed with something. And the podcast goes on for as long as they're obsessed with someone. There's one that's like... Um, a killdozer. This guy outfits his, his bulldozer to be like this tank and then goes on this this rampage through it. But for years, that's his singular focus in life is making this journal. This journal is about how he's making this giant bulldozer to basically have revenge for the coding department not helping him get a street that he needed to go to his business. Uh, but it's just people like out of obsession. Uh, and, and it goes on for as long as that, that obsession is a fire and when that fire burns out, the movie's done. So I'm so glad you mentioned that because that, that's really interesting. Apart from the reflections, uh, as far as symbolism goes, apart from the reflections of which, you know, reflections really seem to show you a lot more than just, you know, whether you're good or whether you're, you know, or certain of your path or uncertain. Uh, I know uh, Llewellyn sees Anton's reflection in the shop window, which is why he was able to take his, you know, damaging pot shot at him from around Mm -hmm. the car. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anton sees whatever the heck Tommy Lee Jones character's name is through the shiny barrel of that uh, lock that he blew out at the hotel. So they were he was in that room, right? I feel as though he was on the scene. Yes, he was there, which is why I thought that ultimately he had uh, gotten the money back because he he and the uh, the the like cartel boys there that had chatted up the dying grandmother uh, or mother in law. uh I thought that they had they had uh, made a couple of it because a couple of Anton's telltale signs were there. He blew out the lock, his signature mm-hmm. dime that he right. had to get the get the thing out, which this guy's all about the coins, um, that kind of thing. But uh, the one that really puzzled me, the symbolism was the phone. The phone rings or somebody places a call and you can hear the the, the tone of the phone ringing at all of these very dramatic, tense moments of the movie. And I was just wondering what that where that comes from, what that might possibly symbolize. Um, I didn't, I didn't do a full literary analysis on this movie uh, over the years as some have. 
it's not the phone exactly, but a little bit in the same vein, something I thought of that you just reminded me of, is you're ticking at a couple different specific points in the movie. You hear ticking before he wakes up and says, okay, or, or, or whatever he says when he's going to go mm-hmm. get Agua. I wish I could remember exactly what he says. But that, that almost made me feel like telltale heart. You're in a bedroom, you, yeah. you're guilty, you feel ticking, and then the ticking stops where you can finally scratch the itch that is the guilt. And I think it's interesting that the movie stops at the end of the movie is with that ticking sound. Well, I think that oh, yeah. you also have these very abrupt and harsh sounds. Like, uh, so I don't know how many of you were born in the 80s, but um, I was. Represent, so, yeah. Yeah. So the the telephone that you hear is like just a very familiar tone. Mm-hmm. But you also remember that from childhood as being extremely jarring no matter what. Like it was meant to grab your attention. And I think that it very much... Um, like in Kill Bill, when you hear the siren whenever she's about to kill someone or hurt someone, I think that it's very much like that. We're like, oh, things are about to turn, but you don't know which way they're going to turn. So it's the information being delivered. And it's almost kind of like a, uh, I don't know, a, like they're throwing something in your face that, you know, you don't know if it's important or not but it could be life or death for one of these characters. Absolutely. Hmm. And it's one of the only tones in the, I mean, the soundtrack's almost non-existent. With, mm-hmm. Other than the phone ringing, you don't really get a lot of tunes. I mean, all the sound is diegetic. Um, yeah. From what That's I can right. recall. I'm looking through my notes, and I literally have a note that says, Woody has strikingly blue eyes. So, oh, Woody Harrelson? Yeah. yeah. You yeah. take that for what Always. I'm so glad you brought that up. This is a peak movie for every actor. I mean, this is Tommy Lee Jones. It is most Tommy Lee Jones. I think it's Josh Brolin at the height of his powers. This is, I mean, this is the most Woody. I, Woody Harrelson just played this character in season one of True Detective. I mean, I feel like this is, it just kind of caught everyone at the same time. Like the 04 Red Sox. I feel like everyone kind of coalesced at the height of their power and everything kind of came together. And I don't know if you made this movie again today. I mean, you couldn't cast the same people. They're too, too cool. I don't know who you would cast if you made it now a decade later. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So you we know. just, a couple days ago, watched True Grit. And something uh, in True Grit that comes up a lot is a flashy Texan who's remarked as, as talking too much. Woody is a kind of more flashy. than Everyone's, there's a lot of Texans who are very Texan. Woody dresses the flashy Texan and he is remarked on as talking too much. What other westerns have that trope? Is, is that a lot of All them? Of them. Uh, everyone has, like, but like specifically, like a very flashy. I'm from Texas, gentleman who talks too much. You mean um, modern westerns? There, there is a any. Well, I hmm. think that comes from just the idea. So there is the southern. There's the South, uh-huh. and you're a member of the South if you're in the South. But you oh, are yeah. Texans consider themselves a very separate and special Southern. Um, they consider themselves from a union outside of this union and yeah. kind of bigger than, greater than, nothing can beat. And so you're you're really raised that way. Like I had, even though I shouldn't, I mean, this state is horrible. Um, I have a lot of Texas pride, you know, but I'm like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I'll throw down with anyone if they want to say crap about my state. <laughs> I know it's terrible, but I'm the only one that could say that, <laughs> you know, but um, I, I think that that, that, feeling gets evoked as often as possible in westerns Hmm. interesting i I think it's just a cultural uh tip of the hat (laughs) even if it's not the loud yeah 
talkative Texan. There's even in the good, bad, and the ugly. I think the ugly is the guy who's just nonstop mm-hmm. yammering, which is why I would never last in the old west. I would be murdered <laughs> I'd immediately. I'd be I'd be murdered, murdered so fast. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that you said that about the old west. I think this movie captures the perfection of the old west in that. Like you're, I, someone was saying earlier, there's so much of this movie where it's just like, okay, why are we all just sitting here? It's so boring. Every everything's just happening. I remember, and I remember seeing in this movie so many fans all around the place, and that like really brought me back to my childhood of like, shit, everyone had a fan going all the time, and sometimes all you would hear was the whirring of that fan because there was nothing else going on, and so it's a perfect modern day western because. Old West, there were a lot of down times where, you know, you're just sitting waiting for a bad guy to come, you know, and this really shows like we're just sitting waiting for a bad guy to come. So mm-hmm. the um, the staccato of, you know, the action, like there's just, you know, a, a definite downtime and wait period. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's much of the movie. Mm-hmm. Dark shots with no motion, no, certainly no music and no dialogue. Which I think was so perfect because it gives you as the audience a, a, a moment to reflect on the only thing that's happening in this scene is that your breathing is intensifying and that makes it even worse for you. I think that's why I often so have to get up, especially in the hotel scene. You cannot handle the tension. Yeah. I've left this movie twice in the hotel whenever, you know, Llewellyn and Anton actually kind of face off there for a second I just, I have to go because it gets too intense for me and my heart is just pounding. I'm like, I have to go to the bathroom. I'll be back. <laughs> your, your brain is just, why are you standing on, sitting on that bed in front of that door? Come on. <laughs> oh my God, yes. get under the bed. Not in front of the lock. No. <laughs> it's going to hit you in the eye. <laughs> There's a line in this movie that takes me a lot back to church in Utah. It's, it feels like, like such a religious conversation that folks would have. And it kind of starts with, there's a couple of different conversations that kind of fall into this umbrella. But it starts with the line, it's an all-out war. And what he, he does not mean, this guy in black who's killing a lot of people, he doesn't mean any other bodies today. He just means evil in general. He just means crime in the United States. Or he means the impossibility of, of doing his job or being the sort of person he feels that he needs to be. I thought it was so interesting. He says it's all at war and he, he, he's not at all talking about the specifics of what they're talking about. He then goes into this new story, that new story. How do you stop it? It's a way that that type of a, a thing that he says. It, it really sounded so much like a, a Mormon conversation in Utah where they believe that the world is on a steady decline and that their church is a rock or a constant that is above of and apart from that decline and that they're watching this, this steady decline. And every conversation they had about that really reminded me of the sort of conversation that folks would have in church when I grew up in Utah. Hey, it looks like a new restaurant opened up over there. I'll stop in and try that. Welcome to the No Country Buffet. Uh, I'm sorry, did you say Old Country Buffet? No. I say welcome to No Country Buffet. Huh. You know, there's there's nothing but senior citizens in here. All males. Strange. That's right. If you're a more diverse crowd, maybe you do want old country buffet just down the road. This here is no country is for old men's. 
No, I'm pretty sure I don't want Old Country Buffet. Well, you know, I've been feeling my age a little bit lately, so I'll try this out. Uh, how much is the lunch buffet? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, sir. Dinner service started at 2.30. Price $10. Oh, that's not so bad. All right, here's ten. I'm sorry again, sir, but uh, we only accept coins. You have to flip them to me. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what? You have to flip them to me. One at a time. And, sir, really helps add to that ambiance of the experience if you say something witty and threaten them with each one. Well, this is crazy. For one thing, I sure as heck don't have 40 quarters to pay with. Uh, I couldn't help overhearing your conversation with my new hearing aid, Sonny. Why, why don't you take some of my tipping quarters? I've got plenty, and I don't go through them very fast. I'll take that crisp new $10 bill of yours to give to my granddaughter for her wedding next month. Uh, well, um, uh, thank you, old man. <clears throat> um, are you sure I have to flip them? Yes, sir. Okay, that was weird. Well, as soon as the waiter comes by the table, I'll go wash my hands. Good afternoon, sir, and welcome to No Country Buffet. Buffet is ready, so you can just help yourself. Our special today is steak. And don't worry, there is no pink in the middle. We also have a great variety of jello salads. And today only, you can drop your teeth off with me to have them cleaned before you leave. Uh-oh, you kind of have that first-timer look. Don't worry, you just follow one of the other diners at half walking speed, and you'll figure it out. First, what would you like to drink? We have seltzer water, prune juice, cranberry juice, or eye-waddingly strong brandy old-fashioned. You know, I think I'm going to need that old-fashioned. Hey, is that Javier Bardem sitting over there? Uh, yes. He comes in here often between shoots. There's something he likes about it. Uh, oh, and, and it looks like he's been hitting the old fashions pretty hard himself. This is definitely one of those nights where we're going to have to remind him of when we're closing. And he doesn't take now for an answer. Oh, God, he's coming over here. You seem terrified. Whatever you do, don't say anything ambiguous that could be misconstrued or twisted in any way. Imperception of language can get you killed with this guy. What, killed? That's just the actor, Javier Barnum. He's been in, like, a dozen way different roles since No Country for Old Men. Well, in here, he's Anton Churgan. Method acting, you know. Oh, God, he's flipping his coin of death. Just let me do the talking. So when you said he comes here between shoots, what exactly did you mean? Shh! Um, will, will there be anything else... Mr. Bardhead. Will there be anything else? What kind of question is that? Why would you ask if there would be anything else? I, I don't know, sir. It's just the question I ask everyone. Do you think I will walk out of here and then everything will just cease to be? Uh, I actually worried about that a little bit. Of course there will be anything else. Maybe there will be everything else. But maybe nothing. I ain't no profit. Well, what I really meant was, can I help you with anything else? You want to help me? Is that a question or a, a statement? You ask a lot of questions. 
I avoid that by sometimes saying questions like a regular sentence. Oh god, are you going to kill me right now? I don't think he heard you. Who? God. Okay, you know what? This has gotten a little tedious. Thank you, but I've decided to give No Country Buffet a pass. You're giving No Country Buffet a pass? Uh, yeah, that's what I just said. A pass for what? The orchestra? The art museum? Also, is it a day pass? Or a season pass? Is it transferable? Sometimes the building can't get away for the day and wants to give the pass to a friend. I am not going to play this game of nonsense with you. I'm just going to leave. Excuse me, you're blocking my path. Am I? Yes. Now, do you really intend to keep up this foolishness? That depends. Do you see me? I, I would really suggest that you just stand down, sir, before things get messy. No. You know what, Mr. Bardem? Best supporting actor, Bardem. You may think you're something special coming in here and acting like your breakthrough role is your real life, but you're just a pretender. Just like our waiter here is trying to pretend that he didn't just wet his pants, you're just pretending to be Mr. Cool Assassin long enough to get out of here and book it back home to feed your apartment full of cats. You're no Daniel Day-Lewis, that's for sure, no matter how bizarre and alienating you act in public. Do yourself a favor and drop the act. You can thank me in your speech for your next secondary role award. Aloof and smug for no particularly good reason. A cracked veneer of respectfulness that reveals a strong, condescending undercurrent. Most importantly, a total lack of regard for other people's feelings. Kid, I've got the perfect job for you. Want me to be an assassin with you? What? No. I want you to come with me and be my assistant at the movie shoot I'm working on. Get me coffee and stuff. With your skills, you could be directing the second unit in Hong Kong by the end of the year. What do you say? Um, uh, well, I say, um, it beats my day job. If I want to get endlessly aggravated by my boss, it may as well be in show business. boy. Today's your lucky day, son. Um, Mr. Bardem, you're still flipping your coin of death. Oh, this. This is your tip. Let's get out of here, son. No country is for old men. We have a couple of questions from the internet. Um, uh, one is from Eli, and I guess we'll, we'll have his go first. Um, why is this movie so prejudiced against the elderly? I take it at the time he asked this question, he hadn't seen it yet. I don't know. <laughs> um, but um, uh, the, the, they're all at the buffet. The other question this, uh, that came in that was very, um, very poignant. Oh, well, actually, I, I have an answer to that question. Sure. What's your answer? I do think that yeah. we answered that earlier in that um, it is a thing that we can't speak on because we're not old enough yet. Uh, we don't know what it is to feel the world pass us by. Right. So, so what this movie is, is a movie we haven't even ever seen yet. Yeah. Because the movie is the, is the sheriff's movie, and we haven't begun to experience that movie. Mm-hmm. And if I can get real nerdy again, um, this is the second to last book McCarthy has published. He's very old. Um, I think, especially if you look at No Country for Old Men and then look at The Road back to back, 
this is him processing his emotion. I mean, I feel like he knows that he's getting old and he's on his way out. And in The Road, it's the only book he's dedicated to anyone in his family. He dedicates it to his youngest son, who's 10 years old. And in The Road, you know, you can read it as like, mm. it's depression or it's him trying to come to grips with his mortality and he's leaving his 10-year-old son behind. But I think in No Country for Old Men, he looked around and he realized that I don't have a fit anymore. I was in the military. I was stationed in Alaska. I grew up in Appalachia. I knew the world the way it was. And now, I mean, he writes his books on the typewriter, or at least he did at one point, And like, you can't get a hold of him. The fact that he was on Oprah for the road, everyone was like, I didn't know that's what he looked like. Because he's this <laughs> weird old dude who lived in the woods and used to be able to do that. And now he's so famous. I mean, all the pretty horses won the national book award. This was nominated. Um, I really want to read more of this. I've been trying to read a lot this summer because I haven't been able to with school work, um, Little One's Home, it's been very busy. And that's something I've really just missed is reading. And I, I've done a pretty good job. I've read a, a, a number of books this summer, but I'm going to add that to my summer reading list because I'm just on a tear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all his stuff is, is really, really great. Um, I'm a big fan. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's for just old people. I think this is just him just trying to deal with what he was going through. And he realized that the world's kind of passing him by. All right. Well, the, the other question we have is from uh, Craig Hart at Craig Hart. Um, it's, it's a simply last scene recalling the dream. Uh, was that a glimmer of hope against the pointless violence or reinforces that nothing can be done? We started talking about this earlier, so mm. we could elaborate a bit. We did. I have a theory about the dream. So he, uh, he always felt he'd be a, a lawman until he heard God, or he says some variation of that. I, I, I'm, I'm going to do this until all the older people, they eventually found a new God. And I never have had that. I think this was that happening for him in a way. Like it, it was him understanding that his, his, his time has come to, to have this new phase because he felt a religious epiphany and it wasn't, wasn't expecting, it wasn't draped in anything like that, but it wasn't the imagery of his, his dad going on before into the darkness, carrying a fire, and that he knew that when he's ready to go there, his dad will be there. There's a certain knowing and certainty that he's never had before, and it's the end to the story, or the end to what he outlined is, I, I will do this until I find God. That was him finding God or, or having some sort of religion in that he always thought that he would at this stage in his life. No, I think that's a good point. I think he realizes his time's up. You know, it's coming to a close. Um, and I don't know if he says it in the opening monologue, but the book opens the same way the movie does with him talking about it. And he says, um, somewhere out there is a true and living prophet of destruction. I don't want to confront him. I know he's real. I've seen his work. I walked in front of those eyes once. I won't do it again. And I think when he's confronted with that in the film, he has to retire. And then in his retirement, especially with police officers, I remember when I was graduating college, I kind of looked at, I was really interested in maybe joining the force and then becoming a detective and then springboarding that into a career politician or something nonsense like that. But the, the death rate of police officers when they retire like skyrockets because they have this lifetime of stress. It's like I have a lot of family that are law enforcement and then like it's hours of boredom punctuated by terror. And when you don't have that anymore and you retire in any profession, a lot of people that retire with nothing to do, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you got to find a side project. And I think this is him. He's having that dream and he realizes his dad's dead. It's kind of that like, don't go to the light moment. And uh, he knows that you know, he's going to see his dad again. This might be what Sam said. This He might have found religion or something, you know, some simulacrum of it or something like that. Something that works for him. Well, what's interesting right. is exactly mm -hmm. what you said. Basically, um, the whole 
uh, conversation with the wife before the dream is basically like, maybe I'll help her around the house. And she's like, yeah, no, you won't. I won't. <laughs> basically, I won't let you. And um, he's yeah. kind of going to this uh, retirement without a plan. And so that's kind of the exactly what you're talking about. You know, how much longer will he be here then? Right. I mean, he was basically forced out. He was he thought he would do it forever. And you even see in the scene where him and Anton are kind of in the same room. He talks forever about never having a gun. And um, when they go into the trailer, mm-hmm. he makes the deputy go first with his gun. Right. And then this one, he, he pulls out a gun. And, it's not a six-shooter, um, too, I noticed. There were, right. always were six-shooters until that point. Right. It it's a new gun. It was like a Glock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think he's realizing, like, I don't. This isn't my world. Yep. I generally have no goddamn idea what's going on in this movie, uh, especially at the end. But uh, that's probably probably because I hadn't seen it since it came out. So, I guess I just didn't uh, understand. It's definitely a thing. The only part I really didn't understand of the movie is what the hell Llewellyn was trying to do with the suitcase in the hotel, uh, having it go through one side of the grate and into the other. When the person will go to the attendant and said, who rented out uh, this room or, or who is this room? He's not going to be in that room. That's the room that they're going to give him. He's going to be in another room and have access to the money or something. I, I do feel like so much of it is supposed to be set up like a chess game about, about it. The, the vent thing that, that is, is it him overthinking it because he's had this fantasy? He like He's planned his actions through. He's been thinking about winning the lottery uh, or, or finding money and, and what he'd do. And I feel like this falls into the idea of him living up that fantasy. And there's sort of that question is, is he being too clever by half? Or is, is his uh, wits keeping him alive another day? I think Wits kept him alive another day. He didn't anticipate anyone finding him. And, you know, he pays the uh, the taxi driver to take him to another hotel so yeah. he doesn't get caught in the mix and get and get killed going into his room. And I think that, you know, he just, by sheer dumb luck, is able to get a room with, a, with an adjoining uh, HVAC system that he can pull that money from. So it was not necessarily the plan. But it was mm. his luck that got him through that. Mm. So um, to speak on the end and, and the dream, I I kind of feel like this really goes into a, a myth that I kind of sort of uh, believe in and write in in, uh, in my Cthulhu games. But it is that, you know, all men are gods in and of themselves, but they don't remember that um, when they die, they become the stars and the stars are gods that look down on you and toy and play with you. But then once you lose light as a star, you fall back to earth. And it is that cause a wheel. You're always a God and you're always a man. You can never remember being the other. And I think that um, Anton plays the part of the too soon fallen star that knows that he is a God and is among men and is just kind of, playing the game because he only ever watches from afar so he's really seeing that in a new light in a new and with new eyes so i think when you're talking about carrying that torch that is the color of moonlight you're talking about carrying you know your being or yourself into a place where you will become that which illuminates the sky we have talked the hell out of no country for old men so uh now is the time that we decide whether the movie is sacred. Bovinus Sanctorum. <laughs> or if it needs to be put out to pasture. Bovinus Excommunicado.
All right. So uh, with with Patrick being your first time on the show, uh, you have the opportunity to go first or pass to anybody else here. Sacred. Super Shocking sacred. Shocking me. Absolutely. No doubt about it. This is one of the best films of the first decade of the 2000s. I mean, it's up there. Um, probably the Coen Brothers top three. Absolutely sacred. Watch it. If you haven't, read the book. Watch it again. Have a Shiner Bach. Yeah. <laughs> Texas. Yeah. I'll do one of those things. I did have a Shiner Bach watching this. It sets you in Texas. It really does. <laughs> it really does. It really, really does. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Samuel, Mr. Shiner Bach, do you want to go second? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> sure. Here's the best I can do for you. All right, it's heads. It's sacred. Yeah, no, I... I, <laughs> I, I really loved it. it. It's very striking. It's it's, it's really good. It, it's sort of the... Um, for the listener, I, I just have to say, you did miss something in Patrick's excellent recount of that. And I'm sure you hear him just glowing, saying that. You missed seeing him. has just light up in space doing that. And that's someone who studied this author's work, it's it's a true and rare thing to see this this work be um, met so well with so many peak performances uh, that are there. I, I did think that it's it's incredibly good. It, it's sort of the pinnacle of the Coen brothers' chaos and their obsession with someone just, it, it goes on for as long as somebody has that tick that they need to do and then it just ends and then just life goes on. There, there's something that's so Coen brothers about so much of this movie and um, and I, I really love it every time I watch it. It's just a powerful chess game, very beautifully done, with some dark and real pontification on the human experience. All right. Uh, Veronica. So I agree 100%. This is absolutely a sacred movie. If for nothing else, if you don't care about the symbolism and if you don't want to read anything into the movie... I have watched this twice and had to leave the room because of the just desperation and human emotion that you feel watching this film. So if for nothing else, it's reaction or the reaction that it evokes from you is reason enough to uh, call this film sacred. Okay, Pete. Okay, so like... um... You know, sometimes you can watch a movie and be guilty of the crime of it's late at night. You're just watching it at face value. And here's a two-hour movie that is full of seemingly random disjointed things that seem to go on for three hours. And you say, um, I mean, let's see what everybody else says about it. Because that's kind of where I was on this one. Uh, you know, it, it definitely... It's a thinker. It's a slow burn thinker. You need to look into it. But on its exterior, it can feel like this slow, silent, drab uh, grouping of, you know, random shit happening. Absolutely. And I was ready to come here and say that to you tonight. Oops, I just did. But my <laughs> wife and I were driving around trying to get our kid to sleep today. And she's like, let's talk about that movie we watched last night, because I know you're just going to go on there and badmouth it in front of a bunch of people who love it. <laughs> so well. Um, and it's when you have these several hour long conversations about a movie you just watched, it's like, you know, 
quit being such a, you know, old fuddy-duddy. I think I know what it's like to be an old man. It's to be boring like me. So, you know, have those conversations. Think about it a little bit. It's definitely sacred. There's something to it. Um, Patrick, I just want to know, do you feel like this is uh, the Coen brothers' finest film or, or at least very close to it? It's very close. I think I might put Inside Llewellyn Davis ahead of it. Um, I mean, as far as like, you know, the New York Times film review is considered, I think my favorite, most fun Coen Brothers movie is Oh Brother, Where Art There, Burn After Reading. But as far as like a serious, like I'm going to be a film reviewer and then I'm going to put on my horn room glasses, I, I would say it's either this or Inside the Well in Davis. Okay, I see. I see. I was just going to, you know, be like, you know, if you're Coen Brothers fan, definitely watch this. If you like to watch a lot of movies and want a lot of different experiences, definitely watch this. Um, but, you know, I was I was prepared to come on here tonight and say I haven't seen it in 10 years. You know, I, I, I probably won't watch it again. But for all of the many Fair. artistic and symbolic and deep emotional uh things that it can give to you you should watch it it is sacred if you are willing to let that in and really you know let it come out wash over you type of a thing that was rambling but i'm gonna call it sacred after the fact uh having thought it was not sacred all the way up to the uh, airing <laughs> of this show well i would say uh this movie is sacred but it's not uh it's not the kind of movie that if you don't know uh, what you're getting into when you come to it um, that you can really watch easily. It's not like, uh, it's not sacred in the way that you could just give it to anybody and say, you know, go, here's a movie. You know, I... I You'll love this. Yeah, I, I think it is definitely, it's sacred, but it's, it's definitely a, a sacred for somebody who wants a deeper movie. You know, similar to um, a lot of the other movies that we've really kind of hold up in the uh, things that we've reviewed over, I don't know, our now 37 episode run but you know like american psycho uh it looks like one kind of movie and then you get something else when you're actually watching it this is a sense this is a western but it's ostensibly uh, about other things besides being a western just like american psycho is uh, is a horror movie but it's not really about that you know <laughs> And that's kind of where I'm coming at it as from that. Um, uh, this definitely has a lot of uh, uncomfortable to watch scenes, and they're not necessarily the ones that that you would expect, at least for me. Um, I, I found uh, Anton Chigurh's character, the character of Anton Chigurh, to be the most interesting thing in all of the movie, um, mm -hmm. more so than than any of the other characters. But um, you know, some of the uh, you know uncomfortable situations don't come from him, so it's 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 very interesting. So yes, sacred for me. Just uh, just if you're you know knowing what you're getting into is important. So this is a unanimous five person sacred. So woo, go Cohen Brothers. Yes. <laughs> I think they got a future in this business. <laughs> with, with the same reservations you have, Mike. Uh, that you know it's not for everybody. It requires a lot of, as you say, Patrick, presence of mind as you as you work through it. Uh, you know, you go on the journey with the filmmakers. So, so with that, we end our episode on No Country for Old Men. Um, Patrick, Samuel, Veronica, thank you so much for being with us again. Uh, well, uh, Patrick, uh, we salute you. Thank you for coming on the first time and not being too scared to do it. 
<laughs> well, absolutely. Absolutely. This was a real, real, real treat. I'm a big fan of the show. I've listened to probably 30 of the 37. There's a few I've missed. Oh, wow. But, um, it's great. Uh, you know, film was my first love, and I think you guys do a really great job. Um, I'm a big fan of Veronica. Call of Cthulhu was incredible. And then, you know, what can you say about Sam? He's one of the true gems of the world. Um, so this was, this was a real treat, and I would love to be back anytime you'd have me. Well, awesome. Wow. Awesome. With flattery like that, you will. <laughs> you will be back. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for sharing your insights on a, a film that I was waffling on. I, I felt that was valuable. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a real, real pleasure. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you on the internet and the show that you, uh, you're here about ostensibly? <laughs> yeah, um, I am on uh, the Brute Force podcast. That's on the, you can find it um, through uh, uh, iTunes, just searching for Brute Force. Um, or you can find it on Geekly Inc., which hosts it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Rankin. Um, right now, my tweets are protected because I'm on the job hunt and uh, don't know how much prospective employers would love my Twitter. <laughs> so, um, you know, you can't really see much now, but here in a couple of weeks, it'll, it'll become public again because once I sign it, you can't fire me, dog. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but you can look for me there um, and I'm on Instagram, but I mostly just post pictures of coffee mugs or, you know, my daughter who's pretty dope. So that's, that's it. And I'm on, that's it. And I exist. If you're in Oklahoma city and you see someone tall and thin, it's probably me. All right. Uh, Sam, where can we find you? Well, I'm on Twitter at creeptastic Sam on Instagram at samshine seven. I'm also on Twitter at illogical show, which is the, the Twitter for my podcast. Highly illogical. That is a sprawling Star Trek world. It's sometimes more of an audio drama. It's a lot of the times more of a fate game, but it is all fan fiction in the Star Trek universe where we create our own uh, internally coherent Star Trek thing altogether all the time. So check that out. Uh, the, the person who's editing this podcast edits that, and he's, he's a delight. His name is Eli, and it is, uh, it is is really fun. I'm also on Podcat Podcast. You can find that at Twitter, at Podcat Podcast. And I do Podcat Podcast, the premier podcast of the Podcat Podcast Network, with my co-cat Veronica. Yeah, I'm on that show too. And this has been a little mini episode of Podcat Podcast. <laughs> it's only listenable if you listen to Sacred Cast. So uh, there you that's go, fans. And uh, that's it. You can also find me if you have, hold up a Shiner Bach, you open it, and you uh, say, Inner Light, Inner Light made me cry. Uh, I love Patrick Stewart. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. That's how you come to bed every night. <laughs> Inner Light will always make me cry. <laughs> the day that the, the episode of Star Trek does not make me cry is the day I'm dead. <laughs> All right, Veronica. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Typical Veronica. You can find my flagship show at CAF Podcast. You can also find me on another podcast called at Mythos underscore podcast, where I join forces with the Adam Bash and the Bill Canada and the Ben Stonick and the Cat Shlanka. Awesome. I'm also on Instagram, and I always follow back on Instagram. So. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Pete. Uh, this is about the Twitter, the tweeter. Where can we find you? you know, on I was the going Facebook to MySpace. <laughs> I was going to sign up for Twitter, but then I asked my three year old son if I should. Uh, the only problem is the only word he knows is no. So I haven't yet. <laughs> uh, still waffling. 
He's my moral compass. <laughs> There's a force of chaos for you. <sighs> you could you could have your Twitter name be at Waffling Pete. Yeah. <laughs> at Waffling Pete. But then I will have not waffled. Oh, oh, yeah. not you true. really should Let's have, your, the other have a again. Twitter by GeeklyCon. I'm just saying it, it, it does help. Yeah. <laughs> my wife has one. <laughs> you should all talk to her. She'll give you a skewed answer of my opinions. It is a staple of every film podcast to have somebody not being into Twitter. You guys are really, how did this get made? You're the Jason Manzukis of this of this show, Pete. Okay, I'll take it. All right. There you go. I'll take it. That's fair. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at White Morph. Uh, you can find us as a podcast at Sacred Cows Pod. Uh, we love to hear from you. Uh, movie suggestions, uh, you know, just say hi, whatever. Uh, we also have an email address where we've gotten some interesting questions over the time that we've done the show, as well as uh, an occasional uh, script submission for some of our jokes, and that is sacredcows at heroofthewebcom or sacredcows at heroofthewebcom depending on how you're feeling that day. Um, uh, finally, uh, we would love it if you just would visit us at heroofthewebcom and uh, get on our little uh, website. And if you're looking to, you know, spread the word about us and, you know, not everybody uses iTunes, that's the best way. Just tell them to visit HeroOfTheWeb.com and they'll find what they're looking for. So with that, just one more bit of news is, is that uh, Samuel and Veronica will be joining us next month uh, at our GeeklyCon panel, which is going to be on bad movies and why that's okay to love them. So... Uh, we've also got some other people. We, we, we'll have Hiroshi as well as Nika Howard. I quit. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> now that I have this new information. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally wear a headband and say Sam Strong in my intro. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be so funny. That's going to be awesome. That's going to be that great. That will be great. So yeah, come out and see us at KeeklyCon 2017 at in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as uh, all the wonderful things that uh, Sam and Veronica will be doing there. Good night, everybody. And uh, if you're just going to be joining us in the podcast sphere, the KeeklyCon panel will be next month's show. Sacred Cows Tonight is a production of Sacred Cows Tonight. Executive producers, Mike and Pete. The sketch, No Country Buffet, was written, edited, and produced by Pete and starred Mike, Pete, Patrick Rankin, Sam Brady, and Veronica Brady. The sketch monologue was written and performed by Sam Brady. Main portions of the episode are edited by Eli Ramsey. Want to contribute your sketch to Sacred Cows tonight? Email us your script or proposal to sacredcows at heroofthewebcom. 